Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Evan Bernstein, who is the New York, New Jersey Regional Director at the Anti-Defamation League and is responsible for all initiatives across New York State and Northern and Central New Jersey. He is regularly quoted in local and national news sources that have included CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times about issues related to civil rights and anti-Semitism. Evan has been appointed to the New York City Public Advocates Hate Crime Task Force and the governor of New York's Interfaith Council. He has forged partnerships with law enforcement officials, school administrators, and intergroup leaders across the region. Evan has also testified in front of the New York City Council on topics that include public school bullying and boycott divestment and sanctions around Israel. Evan has over 19 years of nonprofit experience that includes serving as the state director for APEC in Arizona and as a director at the consulting firm CCS Inc. I've asked Evan on the program today as the ADL is a longstanding important pillar of the American Jewish community. And with recent political changes, I know we've seen the impact of these changes in all our organizations. The way we go about and interact with anti-Semitism individually and organizationally is a topic of great interest. So I'm excited to have Evan on the program to talk about his experiences. Welcome to the program, Evan. Michelle, thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So we'll start as we always do just with your own personal journey and how you got so involved in this work with the ADL. You know, I think my journey into the nonprofit space started when I was a child. I was fortunate enough to be raised by two parents that are still very much about social justice and really dedicated their professional careers. They're both retired now, but really dedicated their professional careers to being people that gave back to society, made society better. My father was an executive director, a longtime executive director for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southeastern Connecticut. And before Big Brothers Big Sisters, he worked with LBJ and Model Cities and was in the Peace Corps in Liberia and really just dedicated himself to helping the other and making society better. And my mother, her entire career was engaged in special education. She was the head of special ed in my elementary school and then ended up becoming the head of special ed in my middle school and eventually became the vice principal of my middle school. So really just being raised by two people that really cared so much about helping the other and working you know, to make communities better was something that allowed me to have comfortability, I guess, with going into the nonprofit space. You know, For me, I never really felt there was an option. With my family, it, was, it wasn't going to be a doctor. You're not going to be a lawyer. You're going to be the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club in New Haven, or <laughs> you're going to be a teacher, or you're going to do... You know, that was always the topic of conversation. So I think you know, for me, you know, starting my career at the United Way and now 19 years in, you know, being at the ADL, it's been an interesting journey over the last 19 years, but it's really what I kind of expected and hoped for. And I feel really proud to be the position I am, but I really owe a lot of it to my parents. So how has the transition been? How long have you been in this current role that you have? I've been at the ADL now for five years, almost to the day. The role with New Jersey, we had the merger that took place on June 11th. So that was exciting to be able to expand our work and to do more work in a larger space. But it's been five years now of working within at least New York State and building those kind of relationships and working with community partners. And it's been really exciting. It's been a difficult time. Things have certainly gotten more difficult over the last five years. But I think now more than ever, the ADL is so important. Our mission of stopping the defamation of the Jewish people and securing justice and fair treatment for all 
is more critical than ever. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. But I'd love to hear just from you when, you know, you took this job, obviously you didn't realize that it would be merging with the, you know, New Jersey department. But what was something or a few things that you maybe came in with assumptions or thought was going to be one way and over the years you've learned is kind of a different way, you know, your expectations versus coming into the position and being here now? I think when I started, when I first heard of the ADL, uh, even when I was recruited for the position, I really only thought of the ADL as a responder organization, like the 911 for hate crimes, right? It was really an organization that pushed out a lot of press releases, specifically on anti-Semitism. You know, I had no sense of the depth or the breadth of the work with education or law enforcement or any of those things. So for me, you know, I came in with these assumptions that the organization in some ways was much smaller programmatically and from a work standpoint. And once I started and realized that really the majority of the work that the ADL does is educational, that was a big kind of eye-opening thing. I think also when I came in, I really didn't think anti-Semitism was that big of a problem or that big of an issue. And a lot of the lay leaders, especially my board chair, even at the time when I started, said to me, listen, Evan, anti-Semitism is not the problem. There's no issues with Jews. You know, the same board members now are unfortunately had their children experience some horrific anti-Semitic incidents. And clearly they're seeing the uptick in their own communities. And just last year, Manhattan having the most number of anti-Semitic incidents. Now more than ever, you know, you realize that anti-Semitism is an issue, especially more than we ever realized five years ago. I think everyone was feeling very status quo about anti-Semitism. And I think it's very different now. And I think clearly after being here for five years, I realized the breadth of the work and the depth of the work that we do at the ADL is much bigger than just a press release. It's really, we're in the leading anti-bias organizations, you know, fighting bias in schools through education, educational law enforcement. And that was something I no idea about in any meaningful way when I started. Well, it's very interesting to hear that, you know, we came from a place of being a little bit safe, but having the obligation of continuing to fight hate for, you know, other groups to a place where we now have to kind of refocus on what we're experiencing. So from there, I'd love to hear a little bit about your work and a little more about how it's changed since 2016. What's really changed since I started has been that we've had to rejigger our staffing. We have so many more anti-Semitic incidents that are taking place. We are the 911 for the Jewish community. When I started five years ago, if there was an anti-Semitic incident, if there was a swastikering part of New York, that would be a major news story. That would be something that would get coverage from the Jewish press, maybe even secular news media. Now, there's become such a normalization, especially of anti-Semitic graffiti and swastikering, that it becomes a tweet or becomes something that is only goes into our anti-Semitic audit. Already this year in 2018, we've seen an uptick in anti-Semitic assaults. For me, the concern is what was considered a really big deal you know, five years ago now has become very normalized, even within the Jewish community and the mainstream community. And my fear is levels of anti-Semitism and levels of hate that become normalized. And what's next? Is the normalization of physical assaults of Jews? Is that? And then what's after that? You can't live in the building. Right. Or you can't go to the school. All the progress that we've made over the last 50, 60 years that we've taken for granted, I think it could be eroding faster than we think. I think that's one thing that makes your organization a little different than some other legacy organizations that have been around for a hundred years is for better or worse. It's, you know, whether we feel safe at one point or not at a different point, it's always a roller coaster as far as when something is going to kind of surge up again. And when something like the work that you guys do will be important, even if it's not important at every stage at every year, you know, along a political or cultural really life. Fine. So wonderful. So you alluded to a little bit about education, a little bit about working with law enforcement. Can you elaborate a little bit on those types of work that ADL does? 
we're one of the number one providers of anti-bias training in the New York City public schools. We're one of the top partners of the DOE in New York. And we train thousands and thousands of kids across New York and New Jersey every year on anti-bias because we know hate is a learned behavior. And getting to young people early on in their education is critical to understand the other, to understand that bias is not acceptable, especially now with the climate we have politically and the kind of the moderate middle eroding. Children are learning this hate online. So we're trying to get in front of that as much as we can. And I think the work that we do in schools is so critical. Also, the work we do in law enforcement, you know, we are the number one non-governmental trainer of law enforcement in the United States. We have a tremendous partnership with the Hate Crimes Task Force here in New York, NYPD Hate Crimes Task Force. We train almost every single agent that comes out of Quantico is trained by the ADL. We do a tremendous amount of work with training law enforcement across the country. We utilize Holocaust museums, specifically in the D.C. area, the D.C. Holocaust Museum. We use Holocaust Museum here in Long Island uh, to train law enforcement, especially police officers that are coming right out of the police academy to understand you know, how quickly a police force can become something that's an instrument of hate and not just a positive community policing. The use of the Holocaust and what happened in Germany is something we utilize very much as much as we can around the country. But again, all of it is about trying to educate people early on, whether it's early on in their law enforcement career or early on in their life. And it's through the educational systems across New York and New Jersey. We understand that we have to get the people early and have those conversations before it really becomes ingrained in their personalities. And then they start using that hate and bias and in a very negative way. Great. So it's kind of the two ends of the education when it comes to our youth and the education when it comes to those that are enforcing the law and trying to help with these issues that sometimes becomes more hurtful than helpful without proper training. Absolutely. I know you focus mostly on the New Jersey, New York area, but I'm curious if you've experienced in conversations with your other colleagues, is it the worst area? Obviously, there's regional differences. Are they so vast? Are we seeing this across the board? These kind of changes, is every community dealing with this or are there some areas that are kind of experiencing it a little more than others? Well, I think New York and New Jersey is unique from an anti-Semitism standpoint because the sheer number of Jews that live in our area. You know, we just have such a large amount of Jews, you know, relative to the rest of the country. The numbers are somewhat staggering. So I think it lends itself to more anti-Semitic incidents because you just have more people that can experience that kind of hate. Other communities that, you know, whether it's Arizona, Omaha, where we have an office in New Orleans or you know, some of the other Midwest or West Coast offices, I think each one is very different. The one thing that's consistent is that we've seen an uptick in hate for sure. Other minority groups are feeling this. When we see an uptick in anti-Semitic incidents, whether it's in New York or in other cities, because we're able to track anti-Semitic incidents, that's, that's what we are as an organization. And we have an expertise at doing it now for over 105 years. Other minority groups don't have that kind of infrastructure architecture in place to track. A lot of these you know, communities was the Muslim community, even the African-American community, the Sikh community, the Asian community. They're relatively new to their nonprofit infrastructure and how they can track and advocate for themselves. And a lot of them look to us for help and support. And that's the second part of the mission. We do as much as we can, but we know when there's an uptick in anti-Semitic incidents that it's not just the Jewish community that's feeling that pressure. It's the other minority groups as well. They just don't have the tracking mechanisms to put those kind of audits out the way we do. But fellow regional directors across the country, I think uniformly are seeing an overall uptick in hate, whether it's at, you know, at the school level or at the community level, 
And it may not necessarily rear its head with anti-Semitic incidents because certain communities don't have the same number of Jews, but certainly the other minority groups in those communities are feeling that kind of hate and pressure for sure. It's so funny because normally in these interviews, when I'm talking with somebody, I say things like, oh, great, wonderful, but you know, it's such a heavy topic. I, you know, obviously at the end of you talking, my, my response is not great or wonderful. You talked a little bit about your partnerships with other faith groups. What do the Jewish partnerships look like in your field? Is it that, you know, are there partnerships mostly with synagogues? Are there partnerships with other social justice focused organizations? What does that kind of infrastructure within the community look like? I think for us, it's moments where we stand together. Probably the number one partnership we have is with the Jewish Community Relations Council, the JCRC in New York. There's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of overlap in relationships, a lot of overlap in the work they do. They're more specific to New York City, whereas my geographic regions, the whole state of New York and northern central New Jersey. So, But there needs to be more collaboration, I'll be honest with you. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the Jewish organizations in the community are all trying to use similar buzzwords, whether it's BDS or anti-Semitism or whatever it may be, to try to hold its space. You know, every organization is guilty of that to a certain extent. And I think there are more opportunities to partner than not. But I think it's the way, unfortunately, I think that the Jewish community has been structured now for so long is that it's been more competitive than collaborative. And it's a lot easier to collaborate with other organizations outside of the Jewish space than it sometimes is internally. There are moments clearly where we sign on letters together, we put each other's names on each other's letters and show support and, and come to each other's events. But I would love to see a deeper partnership with other organizations. I think it's just a challenge that we've been experiencing for a very long time in the community. Right. So the sense is that you're the expert. This is your topic and your thing. And so you go and do it and not so much the sense that not that you need support, but that you need the partnership and the collaboration along with that. Or am I wrong in thinking that <laughs> that your reputation is so high that people don't think that you need the partnership? A lot of organizations are direct experts in certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Like APAC is the U.S. is a relationship and the Federation really is on the ground in helping build those relationships with Israel, but also helping, you know, affect Jewish life, you know, day to day on the ground, whether it's through food banks or supporting smaller organizations. You have AJC, which is a tremendous organization that does a lot of work, especially overseas, in international affairs, you know, whereas ADL is so much of the work is domestic. We do a lot of work overseas, but the gross majority of our work is really domestic anti-Semitism and working on the ground to fight hate here in America. So I think I'm almost our overlap amongst the organizations, but I think a lot of them are very well defined. More than 80% of their work is very defined, maybe 20% being a little bit more broad-based that can kind of touch into other organizations. But I think each of the big box organizations really understand their role in the community and do a great job with it. And I know that we're kind of seeing an uptick in civil participation and people kind of getting out in the streets when things are particularly unsettling. Are you seeing any kind of increase in people wanting to get involved with ADL with their work as they might experience more hate in their community? Yeah, we've definitely gotten more calls. There's a lot more interest in how they can do what they can do I think everyone's feeling that they're kind of tired of just Facebook diatribes that they write to their, all their friends. I think they want to get engaged and be involved in the process. And we are open arms to people wanting to get involved. And we have a lot of opportunities at the ADL for people to do that with limited time or with a lot of time or something in between. We have a lot of options. I would love to see even more people engaged. We recently just had a rally for the immigration separation of parents and children. And it was a nice turnout. 
But I would love to see even more people engaged and more people on the streets, because I think the things that we're experiencing now in our society, people should really be outraged by, and they should be wanting to get engaged and wanting to get activated the same way that people did in the 60s. And I think we're in a moment in time where we can't just take things for granted or stay in our little silo. We need to do everything in our power to get engaged, activated, and also partner with the other that maybe we weren't doing you know, five or six years before. Your model really isn't a community organizing kind of activism type model, but what I'm hearing from you is we're in a time where you have to be in order to have that be part of your holistic work of fighting anti-Semitism. ADL is not typically the organization that's going to pull together, you know, a big press conference. So we'll participate, we'll collaborate in those ways, you know, whether it's the borough president of Brooklyn or, you know, a city council member or, you know, that kind of thing, we will be there and help participate. But we let other community organizers kind of do that work. But this is a moment where every organization has to kind of be in that business of activating and getting people engaged and informed to what's happening because it's a very different time right now. And I think people are going to look at what they did at this moment, you know, years from now, you have to look in the mirror and say, what did you do? How active were you? How did you participate? The same way my parents did in the 60s, you know, and I think that this is one of those moments now in the society, we have to take that very seriously and engage at a high level. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Evan, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Dr. Betsy Stone, a psychologist, helps us reflect on our personal and professional values as Jewish professionals. This unique episode walks us through a reflective exercise as we prepare for the upcoming High Holy Days. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. Well, it's interesting, Michelle. I don't think we spend much time thinking about values. I think we are very busy living lives, which we believe to be laden with values. But I think that one of the really important questions we have to ask ourselves around our own personal values is what matters and what doesn't matter. It seems to me that very often we think all of our values should be of equal importance. And some of our values, without question, are transitory. Some of our values are values that I have in certain circumstances and not in other circumstances. My values change when I'm exhausted. My values change depending on the quality of relationship that I'm in. There are qualities of intensity around values. There are qualities of relationships around values. And I have to think about what are my core values, not just what are my grand values. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Betsy in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Evan. So I want to kind of shift a little bit internally focused as far as the organization is concerned, because clearly your employees and the people that you work with are dealing with very, you know, difficult topic. And on an everyday basis, you hear about all of the incidents and all of the things that are happening that the general public doesn't necessarily get exposed to. How does ADL kind of support their staff emotionally or with training? Or how do you view your responsibility in dealing with such a heavy topic to help your employees also cope with that kind of work? Well, I think, you know, we've gone through since our new CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt came on a little over three years ago, we've had a major shift kind of with our HR practices and how we've kind of look at our teams holistically and very supportive. And it's really, the environment is a great environment to work and it's very supportive of its employees, knowing that exactly what you said, a lot of the work that we're doing is difficult topics. It can be very kind of tough. And I think a lot of it is about encouraging directors like myself to be able to do fun things at times with the staff and get out of the office and kind of do some things that are a little more fun, whether it's going to do karaoke or 
or bowl or whatever, just to get our minds off of stuff. But I think also part of it is having deeper conversations in our staff meetings. You know, you have a lot of staff that are not necessarily involved programmatically, so they don't necessarily understand all the things that they're seeing or they have a lot of questions. And I think opening the floor up to the whole team and having very robust conversations. We used to just kind of do our staff meetings here in my office and go through the kind of the list of things we need to get through and then end the meeting. Now we really save the last 30 minutes to have a more robust discussion with the staff on a given topic that may be you know, a topic that people have a lot of questions on, whether it's Israel related or international affairs, immigration related or hate crime related, and really have that conversation. So the staff feels that they really are fully understanding of what's going on and they feel informed and they feel that they can answer those questions. And I think once people feel informed, they feel empowered. And I think they calm a little bit knowing what's kind of going on and understanding, you know, everything that's happening. I think so much of the fear I think I've seen in my staff is just a lack of understanding sometimes of what certain things mean, or they're afraid to ask questions. And we now open up a forum to do that. I think it's made it a lot easier for the staff for sure. Now that sounds wonderful. (laughs) I can say that too. That sounds like a really great change in sort of supporting your staff through this. How do you do that in staying apolitical? I can only imagine that, you know, just because you work at the ADL doesn't really say anything about your political leanings or views or opinions. How do you have those conversations in a way that doesn't bring up those feelings or those opinions and alienate anyone within your staff? The way we say political as an organization is we deal with each incident specifically. It's not that it's a specific incident with a Democrat or a specific incident with a Republican, right? If it's President Trump doing something like immigration policy, it's the act of the immigration policy that we're commenting on. Or if it's Bernie Sanders, when he was running, he put out really totally wrong numbers about what happened during Operation Protective Edge. It wasn't about the party. It's about the act of giving those wrong numbers. So I think it's about talking about the incident itself. And certain incidents may seem political because they're coming out of a political office or from a a political individual, an elected official. But we try really hard to stay on focus with the incident and how that relates to our mission. So if something crosses that line, whether it's political or not political, we're going to call it out. And that's how we kind of stay apolitical. We do the same thing with the same vim and vigor if it was an individual in our community or if it's the president of the United States, or if it's a senator, congressional leader, a New York City council member, a CEO, or a president of a university. We try really hard to be very much the same kind of aggressiveness on each one of those incidents once it crosses into our mission and where we feel that there's been something that's wrong. Right. So staying laser focused on that mission and what that means and how you kind of talk about these issues, that seems to be very important. It is. Um, it's critical. So what does the future look like in, in your crystal ball, if any sort of thoughts there? But really, you know, how do you keep the hope alive that what we're seeing or the direction things might be going in culturally in the country or when it comes, you know, like you said, your mission specifically to the increase in hate? Is it a good future? Is it, you know, how do you keep the hope that things will get better as you continue your work? Well, I'll start with the bad and I'll end with the positive. I think for me, the thing that I'm scared about is how far the middle is going away. The moderate middle is just really eroding very quickly right before our very eyes. And I think you have an extreme left and extreme right, and neither side can really talk or communicate. You see that politically, you see it community leaders, you see it in all aspects of our life. And if we can't find that middle again, the way we have as a country in years past, that's going to make for a very, very difficult road to hoe, I think, for civil rights and, you know, around hate and everything else. The positive I see is I do a lot of work with kids. Again, we're in so many schools across the region that I talk with these kids and I know that they want 
moderation. They want to be in the middle. They're our future. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy and maybe a bit cliche that children are our future, but they really are. And I think that they are understanding the ills right now of society based on the conversations. And so many kids are stepping up right now in our public schools and they're leading and they're trying to become more moderate leaders and they want to get the other people talking, whether from the left and the right doing it in a way without bias and having open conversations. So to me, those kids that right now are 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, that are going to be the next you know, business leader CEOs, those are the people that are elected officials. They're going to be the ones that are going to change things. Right now, the current construct is very difficult. And with the advent of social media, and social media is such a pusher of hate right now, and young people get that so readily and so easily, that unless that front also is modified, it's going to make it harder for the next generation to accomplish, I think, what they really want to accomplish. Since you brought it up. What are some things that ADL is focused on in that particular social media space? Just in the education, you know, dealing with that when you do the education work with the kids, is there anything specific that ADL is looking into to help moderate that? It's certainly part of our anti-bias training. So you see so much bias takes place with kids with texting and Facebook and taking pictures and horrific things and explaining to them that these things last forever and understanding the responsibility they have even as young people with utilizing social media, but also when they're on social media, the kind of things they're looking at and the news sources they have is to also work with parents and the students to figure out ways to better inform these kids so they're getting the best information off the internet and not just you know uh, fake news, if you will. From an organizational standpoint, Jonathan Greenblatt, really when he first came in, saw this as the next bastion of hate is really not the Klan meeting in person, which you know we saw in Charlottesville and is still happening, but the gross majority of hate is online. So we opened an office already in Silicon Valley. We hired an expert in Britain Heller who's running that office, and we're working with the Facebooks, the Twitters, Instagrams, all the different companies that are doing this kind of social media work to understand that it just can't be about their shareholders and their stock prices, but there's right. a social responsibility there that affects young people. So we're trying to get it at the macro, and then we also try to get it at the micro levels, explaining the power of the internet and the power and responsibility of using that as a tool for a young person and as a company. Yeah, I can only imagine that that has made your work, especially you know, in the last 10 years, you know, if we were talking to somebody who's been with ADL for 20, 30 years, really made your work a lot more difficult in how you look at hate and how it's spread in and how you talk to people about ways to cope with seeing that. Well, I think the change was, you know, and when the Klan was really big by the 50s, early 60s, they were allowed to cover themselves. And when the ADL was a really big proponent, it was a big catalyst around the legislation to demasking laws. Klan was not allowed to meet anymore with their masks on. And it really cut them off the knees. They couldn't meet, you know, masks. You fast forward now, these same people have the same kind of tendencies. They're meeting online on blogs, on chat rooms, utilizing Twitter, all these other things. And they're able to do it completely anonymously with fake you know, handles and everything else. And that's a huge challenge. I mean, I've been trolled heavily on the internet. I know Jonathan Greenblatt, our CEO, has had it even more than I have. It's a huge challenge that what can go on on the internet, you know, what people could do. And once certain people start trolling you, then it adds more and more and more because of the followers that those people have. And it just kind of adds on and piles on. And it's a huge problem. It's a big, big problem for us. Right. And we see the consequences of what culture and society says when the unmasking happens, right? I think there was a teacher that was at the hate rally that lost his job that, you know, when there aren't consequences to your actions, it's easier to act in that way as opposed to when your society and your community find out that you're doing this and there are consequences because there would be. It's a very different story as to, you know, what actually happens to someone who's doing that. 
I think you know, what's challenging is you could have somebody working at the cubicle next to you that you think is totally fine and right. actually may have a whole persona online that is participating at a high level of hate and you wouldn't even know it. And I think that's the challenge we have. Yeah, I was just listening to a TED Talk and I, I wish I remembered the gentleman's name. I'm sure you might know who was a former skinhead and talking about his experience and how he got out. And he said he had opened this music shop where he was selling, you know, white power, hate music, but also other regular music. And it wasn't until, you know, regular customers and regular people came in and, you know, an African-American teenager who came in who was sad because his mom had breast cancer and he had breast cancer at that interaction of dealing with the regular world. He's like, how do I keep selling, you know, this hate music when I'm meeting and interacting and enjoying the company, you know, of regular people that I've never met before. So it's a very interesting TED Talk as far as how to kind of turn that around which isn't always able to happen, those kind of interactions and exposing yourself to other cultures and religions and things like that. So let's focus a little bit more on our listeners, those in the field, either, you know, JCCs or schools or synagogues or or North American-based organizations. What's advice that you have for them, whether or not they've ever dealt with anti-Semitism personally or within their organization in kind of doing their work? It's to not dismiss it. I think sometimes we as Jews can just, you know, we don't want to deal with the problem where it's fearful or you kind of look twice. It's almost like the next day you say, oh, wow, I wish I did something or said something. I think it's time for us to be able to stand up. And when something happens, you know, have the courage to face it right when it happens. And I think part of it also is to reach out to the local ADL office. You know, we're here as a partner. We want to help. When there's issues that take place all over New York, we're there to try to give support to any organization. Again, that's one of those moments where collaboration, I think, is so important. But I think not to let it go. I think if, if someone's constituent is experiencing this, especially if it maybe crests over into something that may feel even like a crime, get law enforcement involved. One of the things we tell people is if they're being called like a kike or, or something to their face, don't try to get into an altercation with somebody. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what that person's mental state is. You want to acknowledge it. You want to be able to do something about it if you can, but try hard to not put yourself in a position where you may be able to get hurt yourself. You know, I think that's the thing we hear a lot. This is happening on the subway and should I have gotten involved? Or should I? It's, like, it's hard not to. The way to stand up is to do it in a way where you're reporting it to the police or you're reporting it to the ADL or you're reporting it to one of the other organizations, but making sure that that person staying safe in the process from a retaliation standpoint, but also from a safety standpoint in that moment. But I think it's not okay to sit on that incident right away. I think it's important to report it and then figure out ways to deal with it. Like if a student or a child is dealing with something in school, clearly you don't necessarily want the child to get into a fist fight with somebody there, but you want to, as a parent, deal with the school, deal with the incident, you know, the highest level afterwards and making sure you do right away. And it also seems like, you know, everyone's focused on their mission, whatever that happens to be. And so to assume that all your constituents in your community are okay, right? Or that we don't talk about politics or we don't, you know, talk about this or that, right? To really think, well, maybe everyone's not okay, right? Maybe providing a platform of conversation, as you've mentioned, that you've changed in your staff meetings, providing a way to help the community that you work in cope with the political and cultural environment that we're finding ourselves in is really important, right? So as you mentioned, to just kind of ignore that this is something that's happening as opposed to say, oh, this is something that's happening. How can we support our community, whether it's a session at a conference or a program or some kind of materials or some way of thinking, how does this actually affect 
you know, our community and what can we as a Jewish institution be doing to support our members and those in our community in this, you know, seemingly turmoil, you know, again, political one way or another, it's every day, it's something. And obviously, like I said, your office hears about all of it, you know, whereas we don't necessarily talk about it so much in our circles in our community to know what people are really actually going through in their lives. What's also important is that, to your point, people are right now losing close friends within our Jewish community based on politics and based on these social issues that are taking place at a rate I don't think it maybe never has happened before. I think, you know, if you look at moments in history of the Jewish community, you know, whether it was 48, whether it was 67, 73, the Russian Jewry movement in the early 80s, you know, the Jewish community is a collective reform, conservative, orthodox all stood together. And I think now we're starting to see more of a divide than ever before. And I think politics has played a role in that on different levels on the far left and the far right. But going back to that moderate middle, it's not just affecting overall society, it's affecting the Jewish community. And I think, you know, that's where federations, JCCs, you're right. There should be conversations being had because you don't want the divide to get any wider. We can find commonality on not the things that are going to divide us. I think people are leaning into the things that are dividing us right now and not the commonalities. And that's, that's a sad state that I'm seeing, at least within the Jewish community that I work with. Turning it to yourself a little bit, you have recently had an expanded role where you're now between you know New York and New Jersey. I'm going to assume that you have a social and personal life out in the world. Sometimes. Um, sometimes. <laughs> between kind of this very passionate work that you do and you know taking care of yourself, what are some tools or some things that you do to keep your own life balanced and to have some of those happy days <laughs> a little bit away from, you know, the not just the stress or the pressure, because we all have that but you're in a unique position of the kind of work that you do. How do you take care of yourself and all that? The number one thing for me is Shabbos. I did not grow up religious. My wife was modern Orthodox. So Shabbat in the traditional sense of really turning everything off was new to me when I got married. And now, you know, with two kids, I have a 10-year-old and an eight-year-old. Without Shabbat, I would not have any real time with my kids, meaningful time with my kids or my wife. So for me, knowing that Friday comes and the phone's off, even if there's a hate crime, even if there's an anti-Semitic incident, you know, I'm not going to know about it till Mosi Shabbos, that I am dedicated to having that time with my family to go to shul and spend time with them for me is kind of the reset button that I need every week. Because if I didn't have that, I could work seven days a week because of the amount of work that we have going on, unfortunately, within the areas that we focus on, it just doesn't stop. So for me, having that is really critical. And that means clearly being off for the holidays. So I have those moments I look forward to, not only to be able to you know pray to God, but also to be able to know that I'm going to have those moments to spend time with my family in, in a very kind of quiet way and focus on them. Away from Shabbat and everything else, it's a very big challenge. It's a huge challenge to be able to find that work-life balance other than you know when Friday night comes. I try really hard. There's moments where I say, I'm going to go play golf today mm-hmm. or I'm going to go whatever. And nine times out of 10, I will try to do that. And then I'll get an email about something that took place or I need to do an interview or we need you for this or for that. There is an on-call part of being at the EDL. That is really important. It makes the job hard, but it's also wonderful at the same time to know that as a team, we're fortunate enough to want to be seen as the voice and as the go-to, but it is a challenge with family. I've missed a lot of soccer games. I've missed a lot of other things like my daughter does. I don't have the balance that I wish I could have. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges that I have in my current role, for sure. 
Yeah, I think that's the double-edged sort of Jewish community work is that, you know, on the one hand, you're setting an example of the type of work you've chosen, same as that your parents did for you, right? You're setting this example of, I'm choosing to spend my time on this, right? You're not a banker, you're not you know, <laughs> trading stocks on the side. Like there's many things I'm sure you could be doing with your time. And the, the example that you're setting for your family is this is where I'm dedicating sort of my life work right now. And, you know, that means there's sacrifices, but that means that Shabbos is the time that we have together, which is really a special thing. Wonderful. Well, we've covered a bunch of different topics about your work and what it's like to work at the ADL and those kind of things. Anything else that you can think of for audience or about your work or about the organization itself that you'd like us to know? I just hope you know people that are listening that if they're in the Jewish communal world or they're looking to get to work in the Jewish communal world, I really hope that people choose to do this. A lot of my peers are not choosing to go into the Jewish communal world for whatever reason, and they're doing other things, and that's fine. But I think there needs to be more people that want to do the work in the Jewish community. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. We have a lot of leaders now that have been in organizations for a long time that are going to be retiring, and there's going to be a massive void in leadership in, in our community across the country, not just here in New York. I really hope that people say to themselves, you know, again, this is a moment in time and we need strong Jewish leaders that are going to step up in all these organizations that are top professionals that take this very seriously and that want to really make a difference. Because I think it's a moment where we need that, you know, not only from a demographic standpoint, because people are aging out, but also because of where we are in society and how important it is as a community that we don't take for granted all the work that our parents and grandparents put in to give us a Jewish life that is so easy relative to what it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. When I sat with Governor Cuomo last year, when we announced all this funding to push back on hate crimes, specifically towards the Jewish community, but to other groups as well, you know, my grandmother, blessed memory, if she would have seen her grandson sitting next to the governor of New York talking about anti-Semitic hate crime, you know, as someone that went through what she went through in the 30s and the 40s right. and the lack of mobility and what kind of schools or buildings we could live in or anything, the progress that we've made is so amazing, but we cannot take it for granted. And I get a feeling sometimes that we take it for granted as a Jewish community, you know, and I think that that is the thing I hope that we don't. And I think we need the leaders in the community to remind the overall community of how much we need to keep working to, to maintain what we have and not let it slip through our fingers. Yeah, that's definitely very important when it comes to, as you mentioned, the trying to find that balance of work and life and not getting burnt out and working in the Jewish community and feeling, really feeling that sense of purpose in the work that you're doing, which not to say that it's easier for you than for a JCC or a federation. Right. It's all hard. It's all yeah. hard work. We're all in the same boat. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about yourself and the current climate that we're in and your work. It's all very important. So I really appreciate your time. Michelle, thank you so much. It was really an honor to be on the show. I really appreciate it. The work of the ADL is not easy, especially in the climate we live in where anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish sentiment has increased along with discrimination against other minority groups in the U.S., these concerns and fears are silent fears. Unless you work in an organization with clear political preferences, and you can be sure that those around you have the same political views. For many of us, we work in mixed cultures. So allowing for the space that our colleagues can discuss these fears, where they can be provided with actions that they can take in the face of those fears, and keeping it apolitical is basically what ADL does. Their main focus of educating children, police, and legislators does not preclude them from educating the Jewish community. It's easy to be reactive with these issues. 
it's a lot harder to be proactive. So maybe think about the ways your organization might benefit from the work of ADL and what they might be able to provide in terms of support to your coworkers or your community so that people who feel afraid don't feel alone in their concerns about the events they see happening around them. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website, it's who you know the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Thank you.